How you guys all doing? Good? All right. Well, um, I'm Brian, one of the pastors here. We are going to get into the message in just a moment here. But uh, first, before we do, i got a little bit of an um, um, update, and we'll kind of get into that in just a moment. And uh, But before I do, actually, I really feel like I just want to kind of pray uh, for, you guys are familiar, obviously, over the past three weeks or so, Cal Poly's been hit. Three people that I'm aware of have basically passed on into eternity over these past three weeks, uh, a gal and two guys. And um, it's pretty pretty intense. I mean, stuff like that, when that happens, we begin to realize that um, as human beings, life's pretty fragile. Um, aside from relationships and things of that nature, life itself is really fragile. And uh, those things become real big wake-up calls as to how are we living our current life? How are we living what God has given to us? Are we viewing everything that God has given us right now as a gift? Uh, from him and and a lot of people that are hurting uh, from those uh, things that have transpired in the past few weeks, uh, people being gone, one day being there and the next day being gone. Um, when that type of stuff happens, mortality takes place like that, and we begin to view things from a very different perspective, um, especially when we're hit by it and it's very close to us. Um, we begin to realize, you know, is our life making sense? Is our life counting for anything right now? So before we even go any further, I, I just want to pray. I want to offer up some prayers for people that are hurting and struggling and going through just the, the emotions of uh, dealing with um, these deaths. So if you guys wouldn't mind just praying with me right now and agreeing, uh, we'll do that and move, move on. Father, right now we just want to first of all just uh, Just recognize, Lord, that you are God over all things. Nothing, absolutely nothing is a surprise to you. Nothing ever hits you as a shock. God, you have existed from eternity to eternity. Our lives are just upon this timeline. And Lord, really, our lives compared to you are just a simple blip on the radar screen. Here today, gone tomorrow. Um... Mortality is just right around the corner. We, we will die. We all have a death sentence. Some sooner, some later. But Lord, we will all one day meet the grave. And, and God, right now there's, just, there's families that are affected and friends and people that are affected and hurting because of the circumstances of three students passing away over the past few weeks and just uh, the reality of that and questions that are surrounding that. And I just ask you right now, Father, that you would you would breathe grace, breathe life into, into those circumstances that, first of all, the families that are impacted and that are affected by that and that are hurting because of that, their, their sons or their little daughter that they still remember, I'm sure, just like yesterday, who is being cradled in their arms today is gone. And people that have been close to them here are asking questions, why, Lord? I I pray that in those moments that you would just be their comfort, that you would come alongside them and just be their strength, be their comfort in those moments. We know that we don't always have the answers that we so long for or feel like we are deserving of knowing. And yet, God, at the same time, I pray that we would see and trust and savor you above and beyond all of those other things, to realize that death doesn't have to have the final word. Jesus, that really was the message of the cross, that death 
is not the final word. Life is. And that sin does not have to have the final word. That suicide doesn't have to have the final word. That cancer doesn't have to have the final word. That Jesus, you, have the final word. And that's why you call us to trust you. That's why you call us to to lay our lives down for your sake, to love you, to give up this life in this world for the sake of finding life in that which is to come through Jesus. I ask you right now, God, that you would make yourself so real in every family member, in every individual, in every person that is affected by this whole ordeal of death. God, I pray that ultimately people would come to see you as a good God, that they would love you, that they would trust you and lay a hold of the life that you give through the Son. And again, so we just lay it at your feet. We ask all of these things in Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to transition, as we had mentioned. Um, we basically started several weeks ago um, a series called Theology. And what we have been trying to accomplish through this is really just a more of a global picture as to God's redemptive work, God's plan through history. Um, what I want to do is I'm going to give you a really, really fast kind of background or summary of where we have been up to date and try to uh, dovetail what we're going to be looking at this morning into what we have been looking at so it doesn't just feel disjointed, disjointed or disconnected uh, from the rest of it. Basically, we started with this. God is Trinity. God is a community within Himself. God is overflowing with love within Himself. And as a result of God's goodness, God's kindness, God's love, God's community, God created created the world in which we live in. He created you and I as image bearers of God. Our goal really in original creation was to reflect God. How do we reflect God? Well, in a lot of ways. Uh, some of which are loving one another, serving one another, taking care of one another, treating each other with kindness and respect and love. Those are ways in which we demonstrate and really reflect the character and nature and, and, and love of God and the image of God. What had happened, as we had seen through this series, man fell. We call this the fall, or we call this sin. Man sinned as a result of that. God judged. And God, because He's righteous, because He's a just God, He judged. And one of the judgments in which God sort of threw upon Adam and Eve, who were our representatives as for the race of all humanity, God kicked them out of the garden, ultimately from the tree of life. So mankind became a creature that now was confronting death. That's why we die. is because sin is in this world. People like to sort of peg that on God and say, God, if He's a good God, why does He allow death? When in reality, God is life and a life giver. What's happened is what we have chosen death. Alright? Adam and Eve have chosen death. This is through sin. Sin is what brings about death. So if you are able to deal with sin, then you can remove death. Okay, does that follow? Does it make sense? What happens on the cross, and because of God's good grace, God being a covenant God sends His Son into this world, seeks and save, seeks to save those who are lost and dead in sin, and what He does is He deals with sin. How? Because He becomes a man, takes upon flesh and bone just like you and I, 
has sin, as basically takes upon himself human nature just like you and I. Jesus feels pain. Jesus suffers pain. Jesus ultimately dies on the cross. Yet that wasn't the end. Three days later, Jesus rose again from the dead. Conquers the grave. Right? How does he conquer the grave? Because he conquers sin. That's really good news. In fact, that's called the gospel. That's the real good news, what God has come to declare. It's simply this. You don't have to be a slave to sin. Jesus has set you free. Trust in Jesus, you will have life. How? Because sin and the consequences of sin will be canceled. You will then be given life by God. That's the good news. Okay? So what has happened from that, God now seeks to transform people that have responded to this free gift of life that God gives by dealing with our sin, by conforming us into His image. How does He do this? Through worship. We saw this last week. That which we value the most, we'll worship. Meaning we will devote ourselves to it, we will give a sacrifice for it, we will pay money for it because we value it. So if you want a good example as to trying to figure out or determine what are the gods or goddesses or idols or things you worship, you can just ask yourself, what to which are you devoting the best and the highest amount of your time, energy, and money or resources to? That's a pretty good indicator as to who your god or gods are. Should we worship God? Should we devote ourselves to God? Should we sacrifice ourselves to God as Romans chapter 12 states? What will happen is we will then become transformed by God. We will become like God. We will begin to love like God. We will become kind like God. We will begin to hate sin like God hates sin. Rather than playing around with sin, messing around with it, having fun with it, we'll actually want to avoid it. This is traditionally called sanctification. We are being sanctified, separated, made more like God. And we do this by that which we worship. If we worship idols, we worship false gods, then we will be conformed into their image. Most gods are lifeless and dead and pretty cold, and that's why oftentimes most people in this world are dead lifeless and cold, because we worship those gods, therefore we're conformed into their image, into their likeness, rather than being transformed like a worm into a butterfly, right? Or a caterpillar, sorry. I'm not good at money, nor am I good at anatomy, all right, or biology, or whatever that is. That's why I just chose to be a pastor. I'm not that smart. Anyways... What happens is God transforms us into the image of His Son. And this group of people that are being transformed in the image of Jesus are called the church. The church, right? Okay, that brings us to where we're at today. God has given us many things. Many things. And God has called us or blessed us for the main purpose for us to be a blessing. Right? We looked at this a little bit last week. Same thing with Abraham. God calls Abraham, says, I'm calling you, I'm going to bless you. You're going to become wealthy, but I'm going to give you this wealth and bless you so that, Abraham, you would ultimately end up becoming a blessing to all nations. So God's means, or God's purpose in blessing Abraham was not so that Abraham become 
arrogant and buy big houses and become exclusive and shut people out of his life and become more removed from people. But in reality, it was so that Abraham would become more of a centralized figure of blessing. That was God's intention. God's purpose was that all the blessings He vests into His wise servants, they would be used and channeled in such a way that it would bring forth the blessing of God to all peoples. That's exactly what we're going to see by the end of this, what Jesus does with His own life. So with that, I want to ask a series of questions and hopefully this becomes a little bit more clear as we make our way through it. So the first question is this. What is stewardship? What is stewardship? Well, Here's a definition I took out of the dictionary on some internet website. I have no idea if it's accurate or not, but this is what it says. The conducting, supervising, or managing of something. I like it. I think it sounds good. Or the careful and responsible management of, of something entrusted, not umping, it's actually something, entrusted to one's care. I think the S is somewhere. It's just hidden. Um, and this is my definition. Okay, Stewardship is this. A steward is one who manages the gifts of God. So the picture goes something like this. God gives us something. God says, I'm going to give this to you. Not so that you can go run and hide and pull it away from everybody and go enjoy it all by yourself. But God says, I'm going to give this to you so that now you can use this to share. Bless other people. God's giving you something, not as an end in of itself, but so that you would now be a manager. Okay, You would manage it. The biblical term for this is called stewardship. To be a steward. Okay, so what are we stewards of? Next question. What are we stewards of? Well, first of all, we're stewards of our lives. Alright, God gives us life. And if you're a Christian here today, God's given you new life. Now, what was the pers- purpose in which God gave you new life? So that you can be Christians and exclude yourself from the rest of the world, go hide out, kind of remove yourself from everybody else who's not a Christian. Well, unfortunately, that's the way a lot of Christians have sort of begun to think about their faith. Unfortunately, that's wrong. The reason why God gave us new life is so that our lives can be poured out to bless other people. Let me give you an example. This is how Paul the Apostle viewed himself. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. He says, You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Paul urges the people that were believers in the city of Corinth. He says, Your lives have now been purchased by God. God basically has given you life He's given you life as a gift. Therefore, use your bodies, use your life as a means to glorify God by blessing other people. Here's another example. Colossians chapter 1, verse 25. Paul says this about himself. I became a minister according to the stewardship of God that has been given to me to make the Word of God more fully known. So Paul basically says this. He was a critic of the church. In fact, a persecutor of the church. Paul was a renowned murderer who killed one of the early Christians, and Paul went around basically trying to shut the church down. One day, God opens Paul's eyes, Paul sees, Paul believes, Paul trusts, Paul values Jesus now. And Paul, years later, would summarize all this by writing and saying, I realize what happened to me was God gave me life. God gave me life. But my life was not to be lived as a means of pleasure in and of itself for myself as an end, but my life that God gave to me was given so that I would make God more fully known. You guys following so far? That's the idea. That's what Paul is saying. So we are stewards of our lives. We're stewards of spouses and families. If you're married here, uh, you have been given a gift by God. Alright? If you're a husband, you got a wife, 
That's a gift from God. You might not think it's a gift, but it is a gift. Alright? For you women, you might be like, I'm certain it ain't a gift. Alright? It's a gift. God has given you a gift. And we are called to treat that and to steward it well. Okay? Let me put it to you this way. The moment you're at the altar and you say, I do, and I do, you are now connected to each other spiritually. Alright? And you have a responsibility to each other to steward the gift of marriage with one another. Husbands, the responsibility is to love your wife. Yes, I believe there will be a day when God will cause us to give an account. How did you treat the wife I gave you? Treated her like a baker? That's horrible. And God might be angry with you a little bit, but through Jesus might forgive you. Alright? We'll forgive you. But the reality is, is that same thing with kids. If God's given you kids, I think there's going to come a day where God's going to say, what did you do with the kids I gave you? I used them to get me the remote control, God. <laughs> I made them pick up the dog stuff, and I made them mow the lawn, and, 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 and I used them. And the Lord's going to be like, you didn't do what I wanted you to do with them. You didn't train them about Christ. You didn't love them. You didn't go out and play catch with them. You weren't there for them. You didn't tell them about me. Really bad steward. Really bad servant. Okay? Everything we have is a gift from God to be stewarded. The earth. Okay? Be really honest with you. Uh, I think a lot of Christians don't even care about the earth. We just don't even think about it. You know what I think's happened? I think over the past 10, 15 years, Christians have watched liberal, tree-hugging, fanatical, ultra-earth-worship people get all crazy about saving the planet, and Christians have done this. Who cares? We're going to be raptured anyhow. And that's the way Christians have treated it. It's like the earth, who cares about the earth? It's all going to burn anyhow. They use that passage in Peter, which, to be honest with you, is taken out of context when it's quoted as if we can just now treat it like an ashtray. That's not stewarding the earth. God has called us to steward the earth. He told Adam, steward the earth. He told Noah, steward the earth. God's never changed His mind about our relationship with the earth. However, the distinction is this. Christians don't worship the earth. We don't view the earth as our mother. right? We don't hug trees and, and cry because a tree got cut down in the wilderness. But we do steward the earth. That means we ought to care about the fact that animals may become extinct because we're cutting down their habitat or because we're spraying pesticides that are white. I think we should care about those things. Because we're called to steward it. Not worship it. Not exalt it. But steward it. Okay? You guys follow that so far? Last one is this. Money. Just straight up. Money. Alright? I'm not going to beat around the bush. Money. Alright? We love talking about money at church. Alright? Money is something that God calls us to steward. In fact, it's been believed that Jesus Himself taught about money 25% of the time. Let me give you an example of that. Break that down. Every four weeks, I would teach a message on, on money. Or Jesus would teach a message on money. That's 25% of the time. Every four weeks, every four sermons, it's another message on money. Jesus taught about money a lot. It's actually been estimated that as far as verses in the Bible that talk about money, stewardship, possessions, wealth, 
actually exceeds over 2,500 verses. This is a big issue. Some have even said that the concept of stewardship with money is one of the mega-themes of the Bible in a lot of ways very similar on par with regard to redemption itself. That God does care about how we steward things, especially the money that we've been given. Alright? The reality is, in the, in the, in the country we live, I think money is the great American God. I really do. I think money is the great American God. We're sold a bill of goods from young ages thinking that what we need to do in order to obtain happiness or the American dream is to have more of the green in our pockets. And somehow we'll be happier. Uh, just on the Today Show a couple days ago, uh, they basically had all these stats. All right? One of the stats was every American on average, can you get this, is $16,000 in debt. $16,000 in debt. The average American... That's not including mortgage. Alright? That's crazy. They broke that down even further. The average American has $9,600 in debt. Just credit card. Just credit card. Okay? What that means, it breaks down to this. Either some people are in really extreme hard times and they, they've learned to live on that, or others have this tendency to be driven by the sense where I need something... And because I don't have the money to pay for it, I'll buy it on credit card. And what happens is it creates this horrible, uh, unfortunate spiral of events where people become slaves to the creditors. Money is a big issue. In reality, money, the way God wants us to view it, is really to be currency for the kingdom of God. But it's hard for it to be used as currency for the kingdom of God when we are spending all of our money on trinkets that are here today, gone tomorrow, on debt that really gets us nothing, and just all sorts of other things that we really just don't need. We buy things that we don't really need with money we don't really have to impress people we really don't even like. And that's the dilemma we find ourselves in. We have this intrinsic value sort of placed upon the things that we have means it equals the type of people we are. Not many people walking around, flashing money, being like, check it out, I got $300 right here. But what they do is they buy things. And we flash those things around instead. So we convert our money into items. Right? And we flash those things around. Because those become status symbols. Those become things that people look at us and say, wow, that guy's amazing. He's got like spinners on his car. Alright? Alright? That guy's amazing. He's got a huge gold necklace around his neck with a dollar sign on it. That guy's cool. I want to be like that. You know what I mean? It's how we think. It's like these become status symbols of how we live and finding our value in that. Okay, so we are ultimately be stewards of all of these things. So the question next is, what does the Bible teach about money? I want you guys to turn your Bible real quick to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you don't have your Bible, uh, we do have some in the back or we have it on the screen. But 1 Timothy chapter 6 says this. It's a great passage. Paul the Apostle is writing to a young pastor who's pastoring a church dealing with uh, uh, people in the Roman Empire that are you know, kind of dealing with a lot of the same stuff that we are in terms of finances and money and you know, buying stuff. Only to them it wasn't iPhones. It was like silk 
scarves or something. I don't know what it was back then. But um, anyhow, here's what he says. There is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of this world, but if we take, if we do not take anything out of this world, but if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich, they fall into a temptation and into a snare and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and through it its cravings that some have wandered away from the faith and they pierce themselves through with many pangs or many pains. The idea here is that we oftentimes, I've oftentimes heard the verse completely mistranslated saying, you know, money is the root of all kinds of evil. Really, that's not true. Money is just an object, right? Money is not evil. Money is not good. It just is. What happens, though, is money can become an item that's used for evil or used for good. Depends upon how you value it. So Paul's saying, if you love money, if that becomes your final pursuit in life, if that becomes what you are looking for or hoping to have more of or asking God to fill your bank with, or hoping you had constant flow of it, then what would happen is that you will begin to do anything to obtain that, even sin. If you own a business and your chief goal is to make a lot of money, then in that practice of business, you can begin to do things that are, that are false, that are wrong, unethical, just to get money. Really what happens is that your God is money and you'll do anything to obtain it. Again, like we looked at last week, you will begin to make decisions to obtain it, then you will begin to make sacrifices towards that end. So the last little section here in Timothy, uh, in about verse 17, chapter 6, he says this, For the rich in this present age, he says, charge them, so that they're not arrogant, nor to set their hopes on uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, and to do good. So, obviously, God gives us things, and He wants us to enjoy them. It's a blessing. It's a blessing. But again, so you know, this idea that being given gifts from God should be not enjoyed, but just given away, it's not true. It's not biblical. God doesn't call us to be a bunch of, you know, just uh, a, a people that don't feel. In fact, God opposite wants us to be people that feel deeply. But He wants us to feel deeply about the right things. Does that make sense? What happens is that we don't feel passionate enough about the right things. This is, this is the guy that spends all of his time building his business, making a lot of money, to buy extra houses, to buy extra vehicles, but never hangs out with his kids. Never finds time to go use the boat that he bought. Never has opportunity to ever even engage in this because all of his time, all of his energy is being pursued upon things that really aren't as satisfying. So it's... Look what C.S. Lewis once said. He says he finds that really our passions are, it's not that we're, they're not strong enough, or that, that they're too strong, and that they're not strong enough, that we find ourselves more content, he uses his illustration, it's like a little kid making mud pies in the middle of a slum when he's been offered a vacation at sea. But he just can't conceive of how great a vacation is at sea because he lives in a slum, just can't see it, can't feel it, can't be passionate about it, so he just goes and settles for making mud pies. That's the way a lot of Christians are. We settle for the lesser joys when God says, I got, I got so much more for you. 
contentment in me is great gain. So he finishes this in verse 18. He says, tell these guys that they're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So the point that Paul again makes is very consistent with everything I've been saying up to this point. God gives so that we can be givers. God blesses so that we can be blessers. Okay? So let's go on. What does the Bible teach about money? Well, first of all, I think it says something like this. That we are to be content with what we're given. Verse 6 in that Timothy passage is pretty clear about that. Here's another passage. A couple other passages. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says this. The only other time or only other place that that word content appears is this. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that being content in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Paul's basically saying, listen, there's great value in being content in God alone. In, in finding a contentment in God alone. Here's one more verse. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 says this, Keep your lives free from the love of money. A direct uh, command for us to avoid. It's a trap that we need to be careful of. And he says, And be content with what you have. Because God said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Period. So here's what happens. The temptation is that we begin to think that things or money is what's going to make us happy. Have you ever met people like that? You know, they're never happy. Nothing really satisfies them. To them, happiness is something that's just beyond them. Alright? Happiness is something that's just beyond them. Happiness is the guy next door. If I could just have what he has, then I'll be happy. Okay? Let me give you another perspective on wealth. Because Paul talks to these people and he says, be careful about your wealth. Alright? Be careful about your wealth. Who, who is wealthy in this age? Alright? In America. The bottom line is this, is that if I were to ask most of you and ask, ask are, are you wealthy? Are you rich? Most of us would say, no. <laughs> no. I'm not rich. Here's the reason why. In the culture in which we live, because mass media is so popular, we can turn on television, we can watch Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, we can see other programs, and realize, you know what, because these guys have like an 18-bedroom house and have a car that has a jacuzzi in the middle of it, I mean, that's rich. That's not me. And we begin to look at our lives and think, man, I'm, 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 I'm poor, man. I only got two cars. And only three televisions. And they got like... 18, not counting the ones in the stalls in the bathrooms. I mean, like, like they're blessed. And we begin to look at ourselves and think, well, you know, we're not wealthy. I want to try to put things into perspective. Okay? As Americans, we are wealthy. Now, if you were to take this entire group of people here and sort of like reduce down uh, collective wealth and kind of bring it down to the person that has the least, all right? And, and that, you know, if we started playing that game, it's like, well, Okay, I'm the poorest because I don't have this. And, you know, you start kind of playing that game. You're like, well, I'm poorest because I got a Corolla. You're like, oh, yeah? Well, I, I, I rode a horse to church. Uh, oh, yeah? Well, I, I rode my tortoise, all right? And you're just like playing this game. like, And it took me a long time to get to church because tortoises are slow. You know? And you just like keep going down. Like, okay, well, you get, the, you get the prize. You're the poorest. You drove a tortoise to church, all right? And, and if you start... Realizing, like, who has the least, 
And take everything that you have from the clothing that's on your body to the hygiene that you might not even think about. I mean, hopefully you brushed your teeth today, but just in case you didn't, I'm going to assume it's because you forgot, alright? But if, if you took the, 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 the person who has the least, alright, from the clothing they have to the hygiene that they hopefully typically do, uh, to their house where they live, even if it's like a one-bedroom studio, to the vehicle they have, even if it's a tortoise, alright? And you drop them in just a regular standard community in El Salvador. You'd be living as a king. Alright? Deposit them in Brazil. Deposit them in China. Korea. Ukraine. Russia. I mean, the fact of the matter is, we as Americans are very wealthy. We're very wealthy. We have a lot. Okay? We have a lot. We oftentimes don't see it. Why? Because we're not content. We're just not content. And so Paul says, listen, don't trust in riches, but be content with God. Be content with who He is. Be content with what He's given you. The flip side of this, let me give you a quick little illustration to, to, to point out how this works. If in your mind, if the thought is, if I just had an extra thousand dollars in the bank account, would you sleep better? Would you have a little bit more confidence? Could you rest a little bit easier? Hey, if we're honest, I think most of us would say, yeah, that's me. I would love to have an extra thousand in the bank. Alright? So here's the reality. We don't really believe this. Right? We really don't believe this. I mean, maybe one or two of you do, but for the most part, those of us that might claim to believe it, we really don't believe it fully. I don't believe it fully. I mean, really honest with you, if I had a thousand bucks in the bank, which I don't have, I, I would be really, I'd be happy. I would feel way better. My car breaks down, ching, ching, take it out of my bank account. Alright? The thing is that Paul's trying to communicate, the message of the Bible is don't, Try to be rich in this. Don't make it your goal, your aim, your objective. But be content with God. Be content with who God is. With what God has given you. With whatever lot that is that He's given to you or allocated to you in this life, in this season, right now. Find Him and not a thousand dollars in your bank account as your treasure. Does that make sense? Okay. Next one. The Bible also teaches us that um, wealth is temporary. I mean, this is like all throughout the Bible. I mean, did you guys know that? Wealth is temporary? Anybody not know that wealth is temporary? Anybody? Okay. Yeah, that's what I thought. And here's the funny thing is, we all know that wealth is temporary. I mean, we just went through the worst, you know, financial situation this country has seen in most of our history. Living here. Alive. Today. Alright? The worst it's been in like, Forever. Alright? I'm not an economist, alright? We've already figured that one out. But it's, it's been bad. And we've realized that finances don't last forever. So what we have to realize is that this is the message of the Bible. So if we put our hopes upon finances and upon wealth, financial wealth, what's going to take place is a major letdown. If that becomes our God, the moment that is gone, we feel forsaken, don't we? 
feel like life's over. Life's not worth living. I don't have any more money in my bank account. I should die. Why? Because your God's gone. Your God's gone. But when God is our God, and we fix our hopes upon Him, and we realize that He's the one that we to put our trust in, not money, then even if money is taken from our bank, or someone comes and steals it from us, our life's not over. We might have a setback. It might be a little bit tough having to deal with Capital One or whatever you've got to deal with. But you know what the bottom line is? Is that you keep moving on with your life. It keeps moving forward because you got life in Jesus. Okay, here's what he goes on to say. Here's a couple of verses. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says this. Uh, this is written by Solomon, one of the wealthiest men ever to be alive. Here's what he has to say. I think if anybody has some words of advice or wisdom to say to him. He says this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. You notice that? People that love money, if you ask them, are you rich? Do you have enough? Probably most often the response would be, I need a little bit more. <laughs> a little bit more. Maybe a little bit more in this offshore account. Maybe a little bit more invested in this house. Maybe a little bit more and I'll be happy. He says, nor will he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. He says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And to what advantage has the owner but to see them with his eyes? His point is this, that sometimes when wealth increases, other people increase too and they take it away. And this is why, I mean, people, you know, maybe some guy who wins the lottery has no friends before he wins the lottery. I mean, that's why he's playing the lottery. He's like, maybe this will buy me some friends, right? The only guy that likes him is the clerk that sells him lottery tickets, all right? And, and he's just like, one of these days I'm going to win it. And now he wins it. Now everybody wants to be his friend. Alright, I mean, even the hot schoolgirl that he was always shunned by in sixth grade now wants to be his friend. Alright? Because the moment you got cash, everybody wants to be your friend. And you just watch it go away. You just watch it go. This is what Solomon goes on to say in Proverbs 23, verse 4. He says, don't toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When the eye looks at it, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying away like an eagle toward heaven. I love this picture, because it's like, that's exactly, that's just a paraphrase of what my mom used to tell me when I was a kid, which I had no idea what she was talking about. She's like, money's going to burn a hole in your pocket. Like, woman, there's nothing in my back pocket. It's gone. She's like, oh, that's what I mean, it's gone. Right? That's Solomon's way of saying, it sprouts wings and says goodbye. Alright? That's what money does to us. It's just, it's temporary. Because the reality is, when we die, none of us are taking it with us anyhow. At all. The, last, uh, the next one. Don't make it our goal to be rich. It's kind of what we looked at so far. Don't make it your goal to be rich. Here's what happens. Uh, he makes these statements, uh, Paul does in that little Timothy passage, about verses 9 to 10. He says, people that have it their goal to be rich, they fall into temptation. They're tempted away because... Money is their God, or possessions are their God. Uh, they fall into a trap. Uh, another one, he says that they make irrational, impulsive decisions. Now, I know this doesn't apply to any of you guys, but have you ever like known people, or like known people who've known people who've made like irrational decisions about money? You know what I'm saying? You know, they're at a sale. They're like, "Oh my gosh, it's sixty percent off!" Like this is a one-time offer. I can't. Not only is that, they're offering another fifteen percent off if I sign up for the credit card. It's like, i got to do this because I've, I've got to have a striped shirt. I mean, this is the only time to buy this. 
Right? And we fall for the trap. We're like, gotta get it now. So you make an irrational decision and you just buy it. Alright? That's what he's saying. Don't make it your goal to be rich because what happens is we then begin to make irrational, impulsive decisions. Or it becomes ruinous. Leads to our destruction. Another one, he says it leads to all kinds of evil. Right? Um, later on, it talks about this in the Bible. It says how people, the reason, one of the reasons why they sue each other is because they're greedy. They want more money. So what do they do? They sue people. People get hurt. Their feelings get hurt. Relationships are damaged because of greed. Greed for more money. Ultimately, he says they stray away from God. They walk away or stray away from God. The point of the matter is this, is that if our goal is to increase money, that's a bad place to be. And what if you're rich? Is that bad? No. Not at all. Not at all. However, there are dangers. That's why Jesus says, as He writes to people, as He talks to people, He says, Woe to you who are rich! For you've already received your comfort. There's always a tendency for people that are rich to basically find comfort in their money here and now and not look to God for comfort. Jesus also makes the point in Matthew 13.22, He talks about people that have received the Word of God. What happens when they hear the Word of God? They begin to think about the deceitfulness of riches. And what takes place is this pursuit for money chokes out everything that they've heard and they forget it. That translates to some of you in church right now hearing this message are like, Amen, that's kind of cool. And you go home and you watch an ad or something. Your mind begins to think, i got to have that. And your mind now begins to scheme and think, how can I obtain that? And you forget about everything that God has tried to speak to us through His Word. The deceitfulness of riches chokes out God's good Word. Okay, here's the fourth one. God blesses us so that we would be a blessing. This is really the thing. God blesses us so that we would be a blessing. That's what the Bible teaches us. Everything God gives us, it's meant and intended so that we would be a blessing. Fifthly, God owns everything and entrusts some of it to us. If I were to ask you the question, who owns your stuff? This, the how you answer this question is, is very revealing as to how you're going to view the contents of this whole message. I mean, if in your mind you're like, well, I, it's mine. I worked hard for it. I got a degree. I'm smart. I earned it. I got the job because I worked hard. And the money that I have is mine. And the goods that I have are mine. Then you will begin and be tempted to begin to view your life and view all of those other things that you have as yours. Therefore, you become very protective of those things. You fight to guard those things. People want to borrow them. They return them. It's got a, you know, nick out of it or something like that. And you want to throw down. But when you view it as God's, which is the way that God wants us to view it, we view it differently. Let me give you an example. Um, the Bible teaches in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23, it says, the land is mine, God speaking, and you are sojourners and tenants. Check this out. Who does the land of Israel belong to? Jews? No. God. Let's get that straight. You're Christians all the time like, the land of Israel belongs to... No. It belongs to God. If God gifts it to the Jews, that's His prerogative. Who owns your house? 
I know the title deed might be in your name, but it's all God's. Here's another couple examples. Haggai, verse two, chapter 2, verse 8 says this, The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord God Almighty. Deuteronomy 8.17, God warns the people of Israel as they're moving into the land of Canaan. He says this, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and my might and my hand have gotten me this wealth. He says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. Okay, that translates to this. If you are smart, and your smarts have landed you a good internet job, the reason why you make good money in that internet job because of your smarts is because God gave you a brain. He gave you the ability to think. And at any moment, in an instant, God can take it away. That's what we've learned these past three weeks. Life is very fragile. And it's a gift from God to be stewarded. God owns everything. When we begin to view our life like that, we begin to see the fact is that our car is a gift, our money is a gift, our home is a gift, life is a gift, technology is a gift. Then we begin to view ourselves as stewards. God gives it to us and says, manage it well. So it brings a question. How are we managing it? How well are we doing that? How are we taking care of that type of stuff? Next question is this. Kind of that oftentimes follows in us. Are, are Christians to tithe? Alright, are Christians to tithe? I hear people ask this all the time. Are Christians to tithe? Um, let me first of all say that I think the question, the, the motivation that gets asked behind this question is really um, kind of a revelation of just a, a fallen, sinful heart. It, sometimes it comes across like this, like, do we really got to give God something? I mean, what's up with that? Or the other flip side of that is, what do I owe God? Let me get out my checkbook, pay it, and be done with him. Like you, like you can just pay God off, right? Write God a check and have him be quiet for the next month. The reality is, is even though the New Testament does not teach tithing, maybe like a 10% um, as a standard, what it does talk about is that Christians are to give. We are to be generous people who give willingly, gladly, cheerfully. And a tithe really is not so much the ceiling which caps out, meaning we write the check for 10, 000, or, you know, 10% and then we tap out and we're done. But what happens is it basically becomes the foundation by which we enter in and say, God, it's not that you have given, or I own 90%, I'm going to give you 10%. If that's the way we think about our goods, then our theological basis is wrong. In reality, God owns 100%. And really the question is, God, how much can I give back to you? How much have you given me for me to give back to you for the services of other people, to bless other people? That really becomes the theological issue that we've got to wrestle with. So it's not so much like, how much do I owe God? It's God, how much do you want me to give? How much can I give? How much can I be a blessing to bless other people with the goods and the gifts and all that you've given me to give back to other people? That, that really becomes the issue. Guys, it boils down to this. What we're talking about is the whole issue is worship. Alright? It goes back to what is it that we worship. Okay? So, again, it goes back to this concept that what we worship is what's going to be seen as valuable. Here's some final thoughts and I'm done. First of all, more stuff 
will not make you happy. I'll prove it to you. Think back six months, six months ago to something that you really, really wanted. Alright? Whatever it is. It might have been a gadget, some sort of technology, maybe a piece of software, maybe, I don't know, something for your house, maybe something for your car, something to go on your finger or dress your body or go on your feet, shoes or something. Think back. Six months ago. Alright? Now, Back in that moment, you're like, if, if, if I can just get this, I'm going to be happy. Alright, it's going to be, this is going to make my life better. Alright, six months down the line now to today, where is that item that was going to make you happy? Where is it? For some, it's like in your garage, in a box. For some, it's already like at the Goodwill. For some, you've like already given it to someone else and you've already upgraded something else. My point is this. Stuff doesn't make us happy. Okay? It just doesn't. It just doesn't make us happy. Second thing is this, is that you will either worship money as God or you will worship God with your money. You'll either worship money as your God or you will worship God with your money. Really, in summary, all of this. As I mentioned before, it is about worship, but it's really, in its final sense, about who is the most glorious, what is the most valuable thing in our life that we want the world around us to see is most valuable. Okay? What do we give ourselves most passionately to? Okay, so if we use money in a way to make God look glorious, how do we do that? Giving it away, helping people, you see someone in need, or using our lives as a mean. I mean, I know people like this who've got amazing things. God has blessed them with a lot. And these are some of the biggest Giving, giving type people I've ever met. And you know what I, what I love about it is watching them, seeing them, they're like full of joy in giving. There's just something about that. And it's, it's, to me, it's such an example. Let me put it this way. Do you guys know that God Himself is a giver? God is a giver. And so being conformed or transformed, I should say, into the image of God would also include the way that we think about giving and stewardship of everything. Okay? Ultimately, we should be growing in our gift. The third thing, we should be growing in this gift of giving, just like any other gift. It should be something that we're making aims to say, you know, I want to be able to give more. I want to be able to be more generous. Let me give you a couple good examples, or a couple books uh, that I encourage you to read. Um, you guys ever heard of a guy by the name of Randy Alcorn? He's written two amazing books, one of which is called, it's a really thick book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. If thick books scare you, and you're more into like those little one, the small books are like that big and they're about that thick and half of the thickness is actually the hard back cover. Alright? And it's like a hundred pages and you can read it like in an hour. Uh, he's got sort of a reduced version of that book and I think it's called The Treasure Principle. Alright? That book, uh, my wife and I, we were driving up to a, a cabin in Tahoe about, I don't know, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, something like that. And we listened to this whole book on tape. It didn't take us that long. It changed our life. Change our life the way we think about the possessions and the money that we have. To be able to say, you know, we, we, we want to grow. And it began by us just by confessing to each other maybe areas that we haven't been good, maybe areas that we need to be better in, maybe areas that we just need to confess to God and say, we haven't been good here. Okay? So it's an area that we need to grow on. And uh, Jesus said this, your affections will be really where your money's at. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. 
those things that we have most passion about are really the things that we're going to be giving the most of our time, energy, money to. And the bottom line is is that God, as an all-glorious God, wants us to be living in such a way that gives the impression to the world around us that He is the greatest treasure. And because money is such a part of our lives, it's a tool for us to use for His glory. All right? Chris is going to come out and lead us in some worship, but final thoughts is just thinking through this. All this wraps up or summarizes in this larger concept. This is really about not only the God that we worship, because if money's our God, then we'll do everything we can to protect it at every cost. Everything. All right? If we're without it, then our lives are in chaos. If we don't have much of it, then we feel vulnerable. We feel scared. We feel empty. All right? God wants to be the one that is in that place. God wants to be the one in our lives that says, have comfort in me. Look to me. Trust in me. Find comfort in me. And then finally, it's this larger idea that everything in our life is used as a means to make God look glorious. What is the message that our lives give currently to the world around us? When people see how we spend our money, do people look at us and say, you know what's really valuable to them? Things are really valuable to them. Or do people look at us and say, you know what, it seems like God's really valuable to them. Well, how would they say God's really valuable? Because they would look at you and the way that you spend your life, spend your money, spend the things that you in time and energy on, because you're giving it to God. You're giving it to serve other people. You're giving it to be a blessing. You are using the blessings that God has given you to be a blessing. That's how God has the final word at the end of all this to say, I'm all glorious. I want people to trust me. The eternal God that will sustain and give life and cancel out sin and bring them into my presence where there's fullness of joy forever. We're going to finish. We're going to re- respond by um, worshiping the Lord, singing to Him. Uh, we're also going to respond by giving our tithes and our offerings. If you're one of our guests, if you're not a Christian here, please keep your money. We don't want your money. Okay, we really don't. We want you to know Jesus. Alright, be really frank, we want you to know Christ. We would rather you walk away receiving God's grace than giving anything. We want you to know Christ.